Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded live from the Etel West Trade Show in sunny Palm Desert on Wednesday, February 26, 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and unfortunately, Scott was unable to join us today. Uh, so as usual, when we have a good show, we kind of bump Scott from the agenda, and we make up for it by having a particularly awesome guest. Uh, so for today's show, please welcome David Spector, the CEO or co-CEO, an important distinction, and co-founder of Third Love. It's great to be here, Jason. Thanks so much. Uh, we are thrilled to have you, although uh, I kind of feel it's true that you're the least important uh, co-CEO at Third Love. I'm probably the least important person at Third Love. <laughs> uh, that makes <laughs> us feel special on the podcast. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that your podcast is any more or less important just because I'm here. I feel like we're yeah. arguably the second best uh, podcast in the space compared to whichever one your wife is doing today. <laughs> Fortunately for my company, she's back at home actually running the place, adding, uh, adding, adding, adding value. And I'm here sitting with you, Jason, at Etail. So uh, which one's more important? I'm not entirely sure, but I, I'm still honored to be here with you. That's why like the the double bandwidth from a power couple is is so useful for a company. Divided conquer is what we like to say. Exactly. So here I am at Etail, and uh, like it's, it. an, it's an honor to be sitting with you. You've got a great podcast. Uh, enjoy listening to you guys. So thanks so much. I'm excited to uh, to chat about what we're doing at Third Love. Gotcha. Uh, that That's uh, flattering to say, and, and flattery will, of course, get you like mostly anything you want if you want me to avoid the tough questions. Uh, that's that's a smart way will to Will it play. get me more sales online? That's the question, Jason. Yeah, we're going to have to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> but before we jump into that, uh, listeners are always super interested in the background of our guests, and particularly, I feel like we have a lot of listeners at home that aspire to be you one day. So can you share um, sort of your your path to your current role? So my path is, is, is quite different than most uh, founders in some ways. I was at Google. I've heard of them. They're, they're uh, uh, an up-and-comer, I think. <laughs> I was there for a couple years uh, from 2007 to 2010 after business school. Uh, and in business school, I met my, my wife and better half and, and business partner, Heidi. Arguably the best reason to go to business school. And you know from experience, Jason? <laughs> Uh, so I've been told, yes. <laughs> I actually met my wife at one of these trade shows. So oh, so trade shows are a lot less expensive than going to business school. And less work, frankly. Yeah, and take a lot less time. So I think you actually ended up in a better place than I did. Okay, I don't know. And I saved, and saved less money. <laughs> uh, and saved more money. So, well, anyway, so we, um, I was at Google for a couple years. Uh, and then while I was at Google, I was recruited uh, by Sequoia Capital to join them. I never wanted to be a venture capitalist. Uh, it was never on my radar. I am a builder. I enjoy managing people, building teams. I was never thought of myself as an investor whatsoever. And so I took the opportunity, joined them. Uh, I was based in uh, Silicon Valley and started investing in startups in 2010. And it was a really interesting time because the internet and sort of web 2.0, 3.0, however you want to define it, Jason, was really starting to get prevalent uh, and was growing quickly. And so we were sort of at the beginning and forefront of that. And brands online were really just starting. 
Amazon existed, Prime, I'm not entirely, Prime did exist, but nowhere Just near launched. to where it was to, yeah. today. Um, and retail was still popular. The, the malls were successful. Uh, the death of, uh, of retail, sort of that narrative, didn't exist then. And so when we got started uh, in 2010 investing, nobody was really thinking about consumer brands in the same way. I took it uh, as an initiative myself as a new investor because I thought it was something that could be big to actually get started uh, and start looking at, at, at brands and where e-commerce was going. And so ended up investing in a company named Stella and Dot back at, when I was at Sequoia. Um, was quite involved in the business as much as an investor on the sidelines can be, but got very interested uh, in broadly female-based commerce. And so, in other words, women that were building brands online to serve other women. Uh, and because the percentage of women founders is so low generally, it's higher now, and we're, we're lucky that it is higher now, uh, but it was even lower then. And there was a lack of or dearth of the number of female-focused brands that we were seeing online. And so what we decided to do is make it an initiative to actually find those businesses and brands. Um, and in many ways, as I was at Sequoia and was thinking about what we were looking for as investors, Heidi and I were talking about the intimate apparel space. And uh, it was a category that I had never thought of. Uh, certainly thematically, it was never on our radar. Again, I was thinking of sort of female-based commerce, commerce, new uh, sort of web 2.0-based brands. D2C wasn't a term then. Uh, and sort of where the internet was going from a commerce perspective. Um, and she was thinking about intimate apparel. And sort of in our living room at night, just like many um, businesses that are started, we started conceiving of, of, of what then was called something else, but um, what is now Third Love. And we started to get really sort of excited about what we could build online and where we thought this industry was going to go over the next decade. And that was really the beginnings of Third Love on our living room, uh, in our living room, on, on our dining room table, laying things out before we took the sort of bold leap that, that every entrepreneur takes in this country and quit our job. That is awesome. And uh, I suspect a majority of our listeners are already familiar with Third Love, but for those that aren't, uh, can you kind of give us the the elevator pitch about what you do and what your your unique uh, value prop is? Absolutely. So we set out and and have executed on today really three things. One was to build a brand which is authentic and highly inclusive. Two was to architect a way to buy a bra that doesn't require a fitting room or a visit to a store. And three was to z- design and manufacture a better product using the latest in material science and data science to absolutely nail fit and comfort. Two areas, fit and comfort, that really have never been a part of the narrative previously in this category. You know, women, for the most part, which was very interesting to me as we were looking at the category, nobody really likes their bra. Nobody has a strong attachment to the brand that they wear. It's fine. It does the job. They have to wear it. Um, It's sort of part of what they need to do every day. But they don't really enjoy the experience shopping for it, nor do they like the product very much. And so we thought there was a huge opportunity to do, to do those three things. But look, in summary, we wanted to change the status quo and how comfortable a bra can be and wanted to build a brand that was for every woman, regardless of size, shape, or ethnicity. That That is awesome. And it's it's shocking in hindsight, uh, but... But, you, you know, you really think about the successful players in the space prior to your entry, and it, it frankly feels like they were mostly focused on marketing to men. Um, so somewhat shocking that there was 
like such a white space to uh, both market to and like focus on product attributes specifically for the user of the product. Yeah, you know, that was really surprising to me. I, I like you, Jason, have been on the other end of that marketing as a, as a man. Uh, you know, buy this gift for your spouse or um, something along those lines. And I was always really surprised that the marketing, as I started to think sort of outside the box of me as just a consumer, why the marketing was always so focused on me. When this was a category where the vast majority of purchases in it are focused on women and are focused on their needs and are focused on them as as moms, as them as business executives, as them as doctors, as nurses, et cetera. And so I was really surprised that the vast majority of marketing prior to Third Love was focused on that. Um, and so what we set out to do, which again was quite counterintuitive given that uh, the largest player in the space was peaked at a $30 billion market cap uh, in 2015 uh, and was doing very, very well with very high margins that we would think that we wanted to do something completely opposite of what they had done. So from a sort of building a startup perspective, it seemed pretty crazy. Uh, and funny enough, the investors that we pitched mostly thought we were crazy. Yeah. A, uh, you tell me if this is true for you, but a, in talking to female entrepreneurs, um, there's a common story that it's really hard to pitch your business to VCs because they – they uh, tend to not have empathy and see the market opportunity for products that have a, a value prop to women less so than than men. So they 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 tend to not understand a woman's uh, problems and therefore the opportunity is strongly. Yeah, and you know I I, I had somewhat of a leg up uh, because I sat on the other side of the table. Yeah, I'm sure. And the leg up though that I had was when I started to think about how we needed to pitch Third Love to a mostly male audience, I had been in that audience previously. So I had the opportunity to think through what we needed to do differently and what the people on the other end of the table who are not, for the most part, are not sexist at all. Um, and at the end of the day, whether it's widgets, bras, or uh, the next great you know, social media platform, they ultimately don't care. VCs want to back great entrepreneurs going after large markets building real sustainable businesses. And so, and they don't care what it could be. Uh, and so when I thought through what we needed to do differently in this category, we really needed to sort of change the narrative of what we were going to build and how we were going to do it. Uh, and that was really what helped us get off the ground and helped us appeal to what was a mostly male audience when we were pitching, as you said earlier, a mostly female oriented business. Very cool. Um, so fast forward to today, uh, a couple weeks ago, we had uh, Larry Ingracia on the show. Uh, so he's the author of uh, Billion Dollar Brands. Um, and as I, I assume you know, uh, you are one of the prominently featured brands that he writes about in the book. Um, and so, A, I'm curious, uh, like, have, I assume you've, you've uh, at least read that chapter. Does it feel like he captured a, an accurate representation of, of uh, your story or uh, is there any... Any quibbles you'd like to take while he's not here to defend himself? You know, we were honored to be in Larry's book and uh, to be sort of one of the the companies defining the direct-to-consumer new age brand generation. And he did a very good job of capturing the story of Third Love and how we got to where we are today. And, you know, where we are today, it was, you know, it's 
we're seven years in. So we're on sort of not even really on first base yet. We're just getting started. Uh, but how we got here to, you know, almost first base, if we, if we put it that way, um, is a story in itself. Um, and one of perseverance, many, many, many challenges, lots of late nights, uh, and a lot of failures, um, and a lot of mistakes too. Uh, Heidi and I have always been one to admit our mistakes and to try to, to try to spend time thinking about what we would have done differently. And fortunately for us, we made, we made numerous near fatal mistakes in the early days of the business. An example was manufacturing in Mexico uh, and trying to build a made-on-demand supply chain. The bra industry, interesting to it, most men or women have, have no idea about this. A bra is one of the most complex garments to produce. There's 30 components in a bra. Uh, even with automation today in manufacturing, things are mostly hand-cut and hand-sewn. And being outsiders to the industry, we looked at that. And the, in the by the way, to that point, the amount of time it takes to develop a new size and a new style is very, very cumbersome and laborious. It takes a long time. Um, and so and so you need to have a large wallet and you need to have a big company to develop it, which is in part why the largest competitor in the space has gotten so big. Um, and the untold story of them is really supply chain. And, and there's a lot that they did in the supply chain that we have a tremendous amount of respect for. Uh, because getting supply chain dominance to be able to produce product at that kind of scale is really hard to do. And so we looked at that as young founders and we said, what do we want to do differently? How do we flip this pretty backwards process that's been the same for five decades, flip it on its head and just do things differently? Um, how can we use technology to build something that's fundamentally different? And so we conceived of a new way of manufacturing um, that we, that enabled us to get into the supply chain. People wouldn't have taken our call if we just said we want to make a better bra in China. Uh, and so they took our call. And by the way, they didn't take our call because we had no volume. We didn't have money to spend. And there's a lot of money required on the manufacturing side, on the manufacturer side, to get a new company up and running with new sizes and new styles. And so nobody wants to work with a new company because of the amount of CapEx that's required to get them started in R&D. And so we had a pitch that was very, very unique around Made on Demand. And Made on Demand, while it didn't work and it was a near fatal mistake, that mistake, like many things in a startup, is what enabled us to be successful today in, our, in the supply chain in a fairly short amount of time. Because of that learning that we had with this made-on-demand supply chain uh, in Mexico, that enabled us to get a foothold into the supply chain that we were then able to pivot to Asia and start getting started to, and to get started building what is fundamentally a better bra with entirely novel raw materials, better fit, half sizes. So we're one of the only company in the world that offers half-size bras, 34B and a half, C and a half, et cetera. Um, we couldn't have done that without some of those early mistakes. Uh, that is awesome. And I, I want to... Uh, poke on the half sizes, but before I do, uh, if I were to grossly oversimplify Larry's breakdown of all the companies in the book, uh, he, he kind of talks about there's these these three different ways a digitally uh, native brand um, might seek to gain advantage, right? Like there's there's companies that uh, take cost out of the the chain so they can sell a, a lower price product, uh, Warby Parker, for example. Um, there's companies that uh, Reduce the friction to acquire the product. They they make the buying process easier. So a bed in a box versus um, having to go to a, a, a 
traditional mattress store, which can be a miserable experience. Uh, and there's companies with like unique product innovation that in some way uh, invent a better mousetrap. And most of the companies he talks about tend to primarily have one of those three advantages. One of the things that, uh, as an outsider, I, I admire about your company is it seems like you're, you're really leveraging all three advantages. So it feels like you focused on a unique product that's better than what was available. You have a, a lower friction um, way of acquiring it. And because you're direct, um, I'm, I'm not sure you're necessarily competing directly on price, but you're able to offer a, a, a very strong value proposition. Yeah. And, and again, I, this is, I, I think in order to build a successful direct-to-consumer business, and by no means are we successful, we have so much more work to do, you have You're to, 13 years away from being an overnight success. <laughs> <laughs> well said, Jason. Um, yeah, I mean, look, we, I, I don't think that having just one of those things allows you to be successful. Having just lower price and a website doesn't work because uh, everybody does that. And Amazon does that. Amazon does that and can compete with you all day long and get it to you a lot faster with, with better customer service and way more selection. So you have to have a combination of many, many things. Um, our category is one where price is important, but it's not one of the most important factors to it. Uh, and what we said was we don't want to compete on that because what we offer is fundamentally better. Now, we may not be an overnight success and grow to $100 million in a year, because we offer something for $35, right? Or the same price as you could buy at, at, at Walmart or Target, even lower in some cases. No, what we said was, let's just fundamentally focus on the core differentiations for the category, which is much better product, more sizes, a better brand that resonates with women of all sizes, shapes, and, and shades. And then lastly, a way to shop that you don't have to go into a retail store. And that was a key differentiation for us and something uniquely unique to our category. Women don't enjoy shopping for this product in store. Uh, it's not something they do socially with their friends. It's not a fun experience. Uh, and what we want, and, and also there's women everywhere. Uh, there's women all over the country and, and in, in, in states that don't have any bra stores. Uh, and so, Oh, and, and in small towns that are, you know, 500 miles from the closest mall. And we want to be able to reach all those women and offer them something just as great as the woman in New York City or San Francisco. And so the way we do that today is through a great website experience that's highly personalized and through something called FitFinder um, that we, we conceived of. FitFinder, through a variety of questions, allows you to get, you know, for the most part, the perfect fit down to the half cup size. Um, and to date, we're very proud and sort of another kind of pinch me moment given that, you know, we still view ourselves as a startup. 17 million women have taken FitFinder. That's amazing. Uh, one of the things I really like about your story is it's always interesting to look at someone's original hypothesis for their business and how it has to evolve. Um, and I feel like uh, you've had a bunch of evolution. Like, so as I understand it, when you originally la uh, launched the company, um, you had this hypothesis that like the original uh, bra buying experience sucked um, and that, you know, this uh, some version of this fit finder could be uh, a much more enjoyable way to find the perfect fit bra. Uh, but in the process of building that, you found out that bras in general don't tend to fit a significant 
segment of women. And so the half size thing was less your original hypothesis, but something that you, you discovered as you got to know customers in your space, um, you found a great, a great white space to address. Well, and 25% of our sales, we have 80 plus sizes. 25% of our sales are in half sizes. Uh, and we estimate through our data, and we have one of the most comprehensive data sets uh, in the world on this, uh, because of what we do and how we fit people. Um, 30% of women are should be in half cup size, right? And so it's that data, it's, um, it's, it's the holes in the data that we saw where our machine learning, our al- algorithms would say to us, recommend to this woman machine learning would say this, recommend to this woman a half size. We kept seeing that over and over and over again before we came up with half sizes. And again, this was data that nobody had ever seen before. If you shop at a mall, um, there is no data. I mean, maybe there's uh, you know credit card data and some, some foot traffic data, but that's it. You don't have data on her preferences and her size and body type, et cetera. Um, so we had this massive data set that, that kept growing. We kept seeing the holes in the data and kept scratching our head because the, the algorithms would spit out errors and say to us, we don't know what size to recommend to this customer. Help us, train me. And we kept seeing this pattern over and over again. And we said, wow, there, there is, as, as you said, a white space here. There's a large percentage of, of at least our customers, which as it grew, we started to realize was more uh, you know, mapped closely to the United States who are half size, who are in between cup, uh, that we should address. And sort of one of our taglines now is shoes have half sizes, why shouldn't bras? And that just boils down the fundamental problem. Um, Why shouldn't we give customers what they want? Well, the reason why nobody had before and the reason why nobody else has been able to do it is twofold. One, you can't develop a half cup size without the data set that we have. It's not about just splitting a B and a C in half. Um, there's more nuances to it, and you need a, a fit model to be able to fit it on and develop product off of. We don't, you know, for the most part, we don't use fit models at Third Love. Secondly, in a retail-based business, you are already constrained by footprint. You're already constrained by a stock room, right? Where for our category, there is a lot of inventory already. Let's say you have 30 sizes. You have 30 sizes in every style, color, variant, which requires a large stock room just to stock that in retail because you don't want somebody to walk out because you don't have their style, style or size preference. Um, in our case, we use warehouses. We have the internet. Um, so we can stock, you know, d- depending upon um, inventory costs and holding costs in, 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 in warehouse space, we can stock almost an unlimited uh, number of sizes if we needed to. We, we won't, but we could. <laughs> and so... In case your supply chain guys are listening, you can yeah, relax now. Exactly. Um, but the point is, we can do things that are important and are requested, whether she's requesting it uh, directly or indirectly by her data for the customer. We can give her what she wants instead of pushing her into a a size that we have in a retail store. We can give her what we want and develop product way, way faster in new sizes because of that data set. And so that ability to do that with the internet, the ability to use data in a really, really smart and powerful way is really what has allowed us to address a much larger portion of the market. As an example, one of the largest companies out there, they only go up to, I think, maybe a double D cup in store, right? That's because they're constrained by that, by the store. We can offer, and so they, they can't go after a larger 
woman. They can't go after a larger and a larger part of the market, the larger part of the total addressable market or the TAM. We can uh, because of the internet, because of warehousing, because of our ability to use data. I love it. And so that, that customer intimacy and that direct customer data um, enabled you to discover this opportunity in half sizes. Uh, conversely, it sounds like when you started the company, you had a hypothesis that the camera phone and computer vision uh, would be a, a revolutionary way for women to help fit themselves. Um, and it seems like today the, the fit guide is working phenomenally, but it's, it's largely not uh, computer vision based. Uh, was I'm curious, like, was there a learning that, that that wasn't the right approach for women? Is that still the future and it's just too early in the technology curve? What's your, your POV on that? Yeah, I mean, so you're right. I mean, we... Uh, Let the record show, I'm right. <laughs> computer vision and using a smartphone app to get fit was very, very novel for when, when we did it. And we were operating off of a chipset, iPhone 4 or 5, that was probably a quarter of the speed of what we operate today, maybe even a tenth. I don't, I don't know exactly. Um, with a, with camera, camera optics that are far, far, far less powerful. Furthermore, OpenCV, uh, which is an open source library for computer vision that we were also utilizing, was nowhere near as advanced as it is now. And we were building all of this in-house. Again, we wanted to always find a way to bridge the gap so a woman didn't have to go into a store. So we can reach a woman in Barrow, Alaska, for all those Barrow, Alaska fans that are at, uh, listening to this. Um, it's a big audience for us. <laughs> Barrow, Alaska is on the north slope of, of Alaska. Um, and that's an example because there are, of course, amazing, amazing women that are there. And we want to be able to reach them. We want to be able to reach women everywhere in this country. Um, and prior to Third Love, you needed to go into a store to do that. And, of course, all women over a certain age need to be wearing a bra uh, or should be wearing a bra for the most part. So um, we want to be able to, 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 to reach every woman that we possibly could. And so this smartphone app that we developed and a lot of technology, and today we have a number of patents on it, all of which have been granted on the technology that we developed, was really, really novel. But the problem was the conversion process wasn't as simple as it needed to be. You couldn't be sitting on a bus to work and using the app. You couldn't be laying on the couch watching TV using the app. You couldn't be laying in bed doing it. You had to be in front of a mirror wearing, wearing a tight-fitting tank top, pulling your hair, pull your hair back, take, your smart, take the smartphone cover off. Um, and then through the use of two photos, um, and the smartphone itself was the reference object, yep. into the mirror. Um, and we used the gyroscope for calibration. We used the flash for calibration. It was really, really novel. And we had hundreds of thousands of people that used it. Uh, we were editor's choice in the app store. We, we, we won a lot of accolades and awards for it. We were very proud of. But it didn't work because the conversion process was too long. And when it worked for people, it worked incredibly well. And women loved the experience. But we weren't growing as quickly as we needed to. And we learned a lesson about conversion. Now, that data set, without those early mistakes, without building that app, we couldn't have used that initial data set to then pivot and I talked about pivots earlier because they've been really important in our, in our history and in our growth, we couldn't have pivoted into FitFinder today. So those initial learnings about conversion, that initial data that we had, uh, went into powering what is FitFinder today. We never would have been able to get those algorithms off the ground without that initial data set. Yeah, no, I totally see that. The, uh, I have a hypothesis. Usually I'm wrong. Um, but the, a lot of the smartphones now have actual 
distance measuring capability, like, you know, at least on the, on the front camera for facial ID. And so I keep waiting for the, the version of that to be built into the back of the cameras. And I think when we get that, we'll get hyper accurate measurement. And I feel like for a lot of fitment categories, that's going to be a game changer. Yeah, Jason, you're right. The true depth camera on the front of, of, of the latest versions of the iPhone is coming to the back. Uh, I, as a technologist, am very, very excited about that. And what we need to do as retailers or e-tailers is find ways to make it easy for her to shop from home and to not have to return a product. Our return rate is, is, is incredibly low for the industry, but it's still high um, uh, and, and higher than we would like it to be. And at the end of the day, for us, putting customers first is our, is our most important core value internally at the company. And if we think of it through that lens, putting customers first... Nobody likes to have to return. Nobody likes to get a product that doesn't, that doesn't work for them. Um, FitFinder, while it, while it is very accurate, doesn't work for everybody. Um, and so someday we will take some of those new advancements on smartphones, pivot our uh, IP, including our patents, and build out what will be the next version of being able to get fit from home using a smartphone. It's very exciting. Very cool. I will be looking forward to that. I, I do want to touch on the data a little bit. You've, you've referenced it a lot. And to me... It's, it's one of the, the most important competitive advantages of the D2C model is that direct customer intimacy and the, the competitive data you can gather um, about how you're meeting customer needs or not. So, you know, you mentioned that, that the first versions of that FitFinder gave you a data set that taught you that the standard sizes didn't fit. I advise a lot of big established brands, and a super com- common conversation is, should we have a direct-to-consumer model? And my, my general advice is your issue is less about whether you sell direct-to-consumers versus sell through wholesale. Your, your problem is you need the customer data that those direct-to-consumer companies are generating. So if you're a traditional bra manufacturer, you sell your bra to Walmart and Walmart sells it to a consumer, you have no idea whether that customer was happy with the bra or uh, whether that, that bra particularly well fit. And so... The fact that you do have that data gives you a, a huge defensible advantage versus the traditional apparel manufacturers. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think, look, everybody is in the data arms race, race today. Whether you're a traditional retailer, uh, whether you sell car parts, everybody is focused on data. <clears throat> and the one thing that we did differently at Third Love is we built this company from the ground up with a focus on data. Right. So we had the advantage that we had while we didn't have the resources, we didn't have the capital of a large company. We had the startup hustle and we had the foundation that we started from the ground up, which would be very hard to change if we were a well-established business that was focused on using zeros and ones to our advantage. Yeah. So let's let's pivot a little bit and talk about one of the the big challenges I generally see with uh, digitally native brands. So um, in the modern era, uh uh, particularly with the advent of Facebook and Google and digital marketing, it's become much easier and cheaper to launch a company and have some initial success. So we look out there and there's a ton of, of digital native brands um, that get out of the gate fast and you know grow to some size by cost-effectively advertising on Facebook. Uh, but in general, a, a bunch of those D2C companies sort of plateau. Like there, there hits a point where the next set of eyeballs on Facebook are even more expensive than the ones you bought, um, and it becomes hard to profitably grow. So when we look at all the, the uh, D2C companies that get talked about a lot, a lot of them kind of hit this plateau, 
and it's been really hard for them to continue to to grow. Um, and I'm I'm curious if a if you're worried about that at Third Love, if you've hit that plateau, um, and if you have a, a a strategy to continue to get new customers and grow, you know, even as the the ad buying on Facebook gets more expensive and more competitive. Sure. Well, I, we're we're always thinking about the challenges of scaling acquisition marketing. Uh, and we have a, a really great leader on our team now that spends all of our time thinking about that. We have a couple uh, advantages, though. One, we have very high gross margins. Uh, uh, and it didn't used to be that way. Uh, in fact, our gross margins used to be a lot lower. And we've been able to scale gross margins dramatically through improvements in our supply chain. And, and again, supply chain is a huge differentiator in our category. It's the untold story of the large successful businesses in this space is their dominance in supply chain. And so we've done a great job of, of scaling that, which allow us a, a, you know, of the, the, you know, when you buy a bra, we're able to spend that money, uh, on the Delta from in gross margin, in gross profit on things like marketing, on things like data science and, 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 and data engineering so that we can create a better experience. Um, and that really provides us an advantage. Furthermore, the other um, advantage, which is uh, you know, an advantage for everybody in this space uh, and no different for us, is this is a highly recurring, high-repeat business. When a woman finds a bra that fits, uh, even if she doesn't even like the brand, uh, she tends to stick with it for a long time. Yep. And so from an analytics standpoint, do you guys tend to look at customer lifetime value? Like, is that a... Important metric customer internally? LTV is incredibly important to our business. We we measure that, and uh, in, in it's unlike uh, some of these other categories that you mentioned. It's not a one time purchase, right? If we do our job, and I'd like to think that we do our job ninety plus percent of the time by delivering a great product that fits in a really phenomenal customer experience, she will be our customer. I hope for a decade or more, uh, and that's inherent to the category, right? It just there's no reason to switch. If you find something that fits, especially a half size, obviously we have a distinct advantage with half sizes because nobody else offers that. But outside of half sizes, uh, if we provide something that really is phenomenal, that exceeds all expectations, that she loves, we provide a, a brand that she that resonates with her, that speaks to her, not that speaks to her husband, um, we can really hopefully keep her for a very long time. And that's our job and that's what we're focused on. Um, so there's two sides, really, our marketing strategy. One is acquiring new customers that haven't purchased us, purchased with us before. And the second half is providing a great experience to our repeat recurring revenue uh, customers. That's awesome. Uh, I also, I noticed that you launched a pop-up uh, store, brick-and-mortar store in New York this year. And I think you also have a partnership with Bloomingdale's, if I'm not mistaken. Is uh, brick-and-mortar part of the the expansion strategy? Well, we, uh, we haven't had a, a partnership with any uh, other retailers okay. s in two years. Okay. So we, we, we don't, the only place to buy Third Love is through Third Love. Okay. Um, so we are, we are fully direct. Uh, in terms of our retail store, we, uh, unlike other direct-to-consumer players that built stores very quickly after they got started, we waited almost seven years before we launched our first store. And we wanted to prove a, a number of things out before we went into retail. One, we operate in a category that women don't want to shop in a retail store for generally. Right? It, it's unlike other categories, unlike apparel, unlike a number of other direct uh, uh, markets where the experience just is better. You know, you're dealing with the fit of pants or uh, the fit of a blouse. These are things that, frankly, it's just a lot easier to try in a couple sizes and a couple outfits and figure out what works for you in store um, than having to deal with a return. 
uh, we operate in a category that's not that way. Um, so we really wanted to prove out a great customer experience, put all of our resources, all of our energy into creating that customer experience. The challenge with retail is it is very, very labor intensive and very time intensive. It requires an entirely new skill set. Uh, and we're at the early days for learning that skill set at Third Love, but so far the learnings in our one concept store in Soho have been really successful. We're really, really happy with what we've learned uh, in that store. And that will prove, uh, and that will be a part of our strategy going forward, what we've built out there. But it's not going to be the strategy of blanketing the entire country with as many stores as we can. We want to create an experience that is accretive to the overall online business. That's our objective. Uh, that is fair, and we'll uh, look forward to watching the continued evolution of that strategy. Um, I want to pivot for a second and, and uh, talk about the controversial topic from this week. So you've, you've referenced your um, big competitor a number of times, and, and uh, we're, we're all friends here. Uh, that's L Brand's Victoria's Secret. Um, and if I have the story right, you guys sort of ended up inadvertently in a feud with Victoria's Secret. I feel like... Uh, uh, a one-time uh, CMO there sort of like shockingly called you guys out and you got into a little bit of a public dialogue. Fast forward to this week, uh, I feel like you guys definitively won that dialogue uh, because I, uh, L Brands you know, is, is selling Victoria's Secret at a valuation much lower than their peak. And the narrative um, about this decline of Victoria's Secret is largely uh, that they they lost their audience and weren't weren't appealing to customers. And when brands like Third Love uh, that talk directly to women emerged, that it, it became impossible for them to compete. So, congrats on crushing a, a a formidable competitor. Do I have that story right? Well, you know, Jason, you said earlier that we've definitively won that, and I don't agree. Okay, we will win when. Every woman in America is wearing something that fits her and wears a brand that resonates with her and speaks to her and that she's not ashamed of wearing or receiving the catalog from. A brand that her six-year-old daughter, I have a a six-and-a-half-year-old daughter, or her 12-year-old teenager who's getting into her first bra isn't ashamed to be shopping in in, uh, or wearing. Uh, a, A brand that she doesn't hide the catalog or hide the pretty pink sparkly bag because she's too embarrassed to have anybody at work see that she was shopping there. That's when we'll win. So again, we're really just at the beginning. We've got so much more work to do in order to do that. I wouldn't necessarily say that we are in a feud with that company. We uh, are building something that's really different. We are building something that really is the antithesis of what they build in every way, online versus offline, uh, the brand is very, very different. Everyone knows that who is familiar with, with what we're doing. The number of sizes we offer is two to three X larger than theirs. So inherently we can go after a much larger portion of the market. Uh, and we offer a, uh, a really data-based uh, experience that, that uh, enables somebody to shop from the comfort of home so sort of securely and comfortably. And that's, that's very different. And so we have so much more work to do there. I think that... Um, L Brands has created their many of their own problems, uh, um, and I, I don't think that we deserve the credit for it, actually. Um, we deserve credit for changing the narrative out there, but we don't deserve credit for their downfall. And, um, you know, I, I, I hope that, you know, competition's a good thing, and that's what it make, makes America great. 
and I look forward to hopefully that, them emerging as a stronger competitor because having some competition is good and them changing their narrative, changing their brand, changing the types of models that they show is a really good thing for the world. Uh, and they have a large voice. So I'm hopeful that they can and I look forward to competing with them uh, in the future. I think they've got a lot of work to do. They were bought by private equity, for those that don't know, um, and bought by a private equity firm known for sort of taking a cleaver knife and chopping things apart. Um, and I, and I, I hope for all of the, uh, the amazing women that work there, and I'm sure there are, I, I know there are many amazing women that work there, that uh, too many jobs aren't lost. Um, so I'm hopeful of that. But third love is hiring, so... Very cool. Well, that's uh, very well stated and very magnanimous of you. I, I do know that we can both agree to the extent that Third Love does deserve credit, it's Heidi and not you. 100%. In case she's listening, I just wanted to make sure. Um, so listen, we're coming up on time. Uh, I do want to get uh, one other uh, question before we do run out of time. Um, if you and I get in that time-traveling DeLorean and fire up the flux capacitor and jump sort of five years in the future from today. Um, do you have a vision for how the shopping experience might change? I mean, is our stores going to be gone and we're all going to be buying our stuff from direct to consumer? Like, what, how, What's the consumer landscape look like five years from now, uh, Mr. Fancy MBA XVC successful entrepreneur? Uh, well, I, uh, unfortunately, based upon uh, an expensive education that probably wasn't really worth very much, I still can't predict the future. Darn it. Uh, so I think that where we're headed is a world that is truly omni-channel, where there is a lot less retail. And the retail that wins is retail that is differentiated, that looks very different from it looks today, that has a digital experience built into the retail store. Experiences are what people want. Uh, they are looking for more than just product. They can get that same product online. The exact same uh, product you can buy in a store today, you can always buy online. I don't know of any examples that you can't, or very few examples. And so I think that the world, in the, the, the world of commerce online in the future doesn't look all the, that different than it looks today. I think we will see uh, the, sort of the evolution of the smartphones that we all carry around as processing and, and, and power grows and optics get a lot smarter and the camera on the front. Those sorts of things will enable technolo- uh, companies like ours to actually be able to create really great at-home experiences to bridge the gap. But retail still won't go anywhere. And the retail that wins is the retail that will be highly differentiated and creates a great experience in store that, again, is accretive to that online experience. The, but the online experience has to lead because that's what consumers want. That is a great advice, and that's going to be a great place to leave it because it's happened again. We've used up our allotted time. Um, you did mention that you were hiring. It turns out there's a bunch of great uh, e-commerce pros and digital marketers that listen to the podcast. Is there a particular geography that you're looking for talent in? Or Third Love is, we're about 300 people, and we're headquartered in San Francisco. We are hiring mostly in San Francisco for uh, the digital marketing pros that you mentioned. Uh, so please reach out to us. We're at careers.thirdlove.com. Uh, and let us know kind of uh, what you're looking for, if you see any jobs that spark your interest, uh, whether you're in the Bay Area or somewhere else. Uh, we're certainly open to having people relocate to the Bay Area. 
Awesome. We will put that link in the show notes, so no need to write that down if you're driving. Um, Dave, it's been a, a real pleasure, and I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks very much. This was super fun, Jason. Thanks so much, and thank you to all the listeners out there, and thank you to all the customers of Third Love and the future customers. So <laughs> we look forward to having you, and um, thank you so much for your support of our business. We are just getting started. Uh, that is awesome. Uh, and until next time, happy e-commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 